0: Our Bible reading this morning is from Matthew 5, beginning to read at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied.
1: What we're going to be looking at is this uh, little section here called the Beatitudes. Um, and this, is, uh, this text that we've ha- just had read to us is incredibly exciting. Uh, I, I think it's deeply challenging. I've certainly found it is highly relevant for us as a church. Um, it's one of those Bible texts that you, were planned weeks ago. And um, they just seem to plop in and they just become so relevant. Um, that's just the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what we're going to be doing this morning as we read these things and try and understand them together is we are, we are um, spiritually speaking, coming to sit at the feet of Jesus. We're, we're going to hear him speak to us through these verses. Um, we have been uh, starting, we've just started last week actually, this series um, called... Uh, life together, and there uh, 's a little graphic I think 've been yeah, just just nice che- cheers the place up a bit let 's have that brilliant uh, life together and we 're looking there it is, beautiful. we are looking together as a community um, it, through this section of matthew 's gospel and it 's all about life together. What does life in the kingdom of God look like in community and that's what Jesus is doing and and we saw last week as a sort of our intro talk really um, Jesus uh, has been uh, busy in ministry, he has been teaching, he's been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, he's been healing people and we saw last week that crowds and crowds of people gathered to him to to hear his voice and to to, because they're they're amazed by him and they want to be healed by him and who wouldn't and then we saw last week that Jesus seeing the crowds says he went up the mountain that's where we get this idea of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus is up, the, up there. And we saw that he went up there not to get away from them, but to draw out from the crowds his disciples. Um, anyone who would come and follow Jesus, anyone who wanted to sort of pattern themselves after him and follow him, these are the ones that Jesus was drawing out. And it says in verse 2, it's not on your sheet, he, he, he taught them. He opened his mouth and taught them. And we were thinking last week how this is Jesus shaping his people. He sort of creates them and he shapes them. And so we'll see that today. Why are they called the Beatitudes? This, uh, these verses we've just read, they're known as the Beatitudes. Well, the Beatitude, the word Beatitude, simply means blessings. You know, These are blessings that Jesus pronounces on his people. And so what we see here, we'll, we'll, we'll be taking our time through them, eight um, pronouncements or statements that Jesus makes to his disciples. And it's important that we remember who he's speaking to, to his disciples, um, those who would follow after Jesus, that want to come and hear him. And so he states this sort of blessing upon them, this pronouncements. These are the, kind of like the headlines, you know, the, the, the big topics that we'll be returning to again as we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount over the next few uh, weeks together. Uh, th- they are of fundamental importance. If you want to experience the kingdom of God, uh, if you want to know what life in the kingdom of God is all about, here we have it. Um, here we have it in these... Um, beatitudes. And so uh, there's a bit of a format. You'll see Jesus, first of all, pronounces a blessing. Then he sort of describes the type of person that will receive that blessing, you know, the the attribute or the character of that person. And then he describes the blessing itself. He sort of gives gives shape. And he does that, um, you know, like almost like bullet points, I suppose. Um, But the thing that we have to remember, and I'll, 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 I'll bring up once or twice today as well is that we're not here when we read these things together Jesus is not describing eight different types of people in the kingdom you know we might find one of these you know types no he's describing all people in the kingdom he's saying that that each one of these factors should be seen in my people in my disciples anyone who's in the kingdom of God this should be you um likewise when he's talking about the blessings and describing the blessings he's not talking about eight different blessings he's talking about one big blessing but described from eight different angles he is describing the kingdom he's saying this is what it's like to be in the kingdom this is how it feels to be in the kingdom of God to know him to be with him to experience him to enjoy him so if you are a disciple of Jesus this is you this is what you are, or at the very least what you should be. Um, if you're a disciple of Jesus, this blessing is yours, this inheritance is yours, all of it. It's not just, well, I score well on here and I'm, I don't get that one. No, all of it is yours. Every facet of the diamond points to the diamond and it's given to you in the kingdom of God. And so if you want to experience the kingdom of God, then do the things that Jesus teachers here if you want to see breakthrough in your life and breakthrough in the church do the things that Jesus says here okay if you want to live and see the kingdom life together behave as it says here if you feel stuck this morning if you feel stagnant if you are struggling this is for you the kingdom has come it starts here and it begins in you it begins with us and so this morning, as we, as we come to these Bible verses, we're going to be placing the searchlight of God's word on us. Or to switch the metaphor, we're going to bring the microscope of God's word onto our lives. We're going to place ourselves under examination. We're going to get a detailed look at our hearts. We're going to listen as Jesus teaches us. And what we'll see as we go through these um, Beatitudes, these eight biggies, are, I suppose, two movements or two directions uh, with which you move to experience the kingdom of God. So if you want to move, so if you want to experience the kingdom of God, if you want to experience breakthrough and see the kingdom of God coming in real terms in your life, there are two sort of directions in which you must move. First of all, you must go deeper, and secondly, you must go wider. Deeper and wider. We'll look at the first half. Go deeper if you want to experience and know the kingdom of God. Go deeper. Where do we get that from? In verses three through to six, the first four beatitudes deal with our relationship with God. The the last four kind of deal with our relationship with one another. Okay, this is the horizontal bit that we're talking about. This is go deeper in your relationship with God if you want to. See and experience the kingdom of God. Go deeper. Um, and as we'll see in a few moments, there is, these are not random things just sort of put together. There is a flow. There is a flow um, through these four Beatitudes. First one then. Look down your, your sheet. Uh, number three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the first step if you want to go deeper into God, if you want to experience his kingdom Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means that someone has, I suppose, what you might say, a poverty of the soul. Okay, Someone who looks within and realizes there is nothing there, or nothing very remarkable, or nothing very wonderful there. They look within and they realize there are no inner resources enough to get them into the kingdom of God, into into God's favor, uh, to to, to know him. There's nothing in there. To be there, to stay there, they are spiritually bankrupt. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And so the first step, if you are to experience the kingdom of God in your life, you must realize at the most fundamental level that you would never have made it there had God not have got you there. Okay? Okay? This fly—I realise this flies in the face of everything everyone will tell you about yourself and your role. The, the message that the world will tell you, but this is so contrary to what everyone out there will say. In general, as a society, we value the brave, don't we? The self-assured, the um, the powerful, the, those who are the winners. These are the, the ones that we make statues of, and we name buildings after, and we you know, follow them online. But here, in this beatitude. And all of them, really, Jesus is saying that my disciples recognize they have nothing within them to begin with. There's an old hymn that, that uh, you may have heard of before, maybe some song years ago. It uh, contains this line, nothing of my own I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It's expressing this poverty of spirit. But don't, don't you realize, don't you see what he's saying here? At the moment that you realize there is nothing in or of yourself, there is no spiritual resource that you possess on your own to get you to God, that is when yours is the kingdom of heaven. You go at that moment of realization from nothing to everything. The Apostle Paul writes slightly differently, but he gets at this point. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because God's power is made perfect. That is, it's demonstrated clearly in my weakness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We can't go any further. We can't go any deeper unless we get this. Unless we truly get what it means to be poor in spirit. Jesus is clear. If you think... You can receive the blessing that he's talking about here. If you can enter the kingdom of God by some inner spiritual resource or some goodness in you or some moral character of your own, you will never get in. So think to yourself as we look at this first one, this first beatitude. Have you ever begun to be poor in spirit? Have you ever realized Maybe that horrifying thought when it first comes to you that I have nothing in myself that can get me there. And yet that's the first step to actually getting there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Number two then, the second beatitude in verse four. Blessed are those who mourn for they should be comforted. This is such a Such a wonderful promise. But it flows, it's connected to what we've just been seeing and what comes next. Mourning, you see, is is sorrowing, isn't it? It's a sense of loss or it's a sense of grief that we have. But what Jesus is talking about here is not primarily the sort of grief that we have when we lose a loved one. That there is grief and there is comfort from God for that, no doubt but that's not the focus here. The focus is blessed are the poor in spirit. The next thing they will do is they will mourn. They will mourn for what makes them poor in spirit. They will grieve for what makes them poor. They will grieve for their sin. They will grieve for their mess. They will grieve for their darkness. They will sorrow and mourn for their active and their passive rejection of God in whatever shape or form that has come. Their rebellion against his ways. There's a reason why they were outside the kingdom to begin with. Blessed are those who mourn. That's where it begins. Disciples of Jesus will find themselves mourning for their sin. It comes naturally to a disciple of jesus when they see how far short they have fallen but you might think to yourself this morning well i've never subscribed to religious laws you know i'm not a religious person i've never accepted this this dry and dusty set of outdated teachings from the bible that's not me it's unfair to compare my life to these teachings uh, these standards that, that you're believing in the bible you know, and you might think, well, I, I choose to live by my own values. I'm a good person. I haven't hurt many people, as far as I know. I always try and respect them. I don't need to mourn. There's a, a brilliant um, uh, illustration that a writer um, from from uh, the last century, Francis Schaeffer, gave us, and uh, he said he said this: Imagine that every person who was ever born was told to wear a recording device around their neck. Uh, it's, an old, it's an old illustration, so maybe we'd say it's like implanted or something like that, You know, the 5G vaccination or whatever. But imagine every person who ever was born uh, was told to wear a recording device. And this person walks around and grows up, and every, every time uh, uh, the, the recording device picks up every time you make a value judgment on someone else. So anytime you pass a a judgment on somebody else, anytime you expect them to behave in a certain way, it clicks on, it records. And so for your whole life, it's recording, recording, recording off and on all the time. Every time you say, that person should have given me that car parking space, what were they thinking? I would never have done that. Click, records, noted. How dare they? They should have been much more kind to me, much more considerate. Click, recording. Think of my feelings. She should never have done that to me. He should never have said that. Click. Recording. And Francis Schaeffer goes on to say, okay, you die, and you go to be before God, and you say to God, well, look, God, you can't judge me by your Bible. I never read it. I was never taught it. I was never interested. I didn't like your religious laws. And God will say, okay. And he takes the recorder from around your neck, and he turns it around and presses play. And he says, okay I won't, I won't, on this, okay, I won't judge you by what you haven't read. I'll judge you by your own standards. Let's see how you did. And the point that Schaefer tries to get to is that we can't even live up to our own standards of what is good and decent, what other people should do. We can't live up to that ourselves, let alone God's perfect standards in the law. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Once we realize that, we will mourn. We will acknowledge how far short we have fallen. We, we, we will sorrow and grieve for that which is inside us. And I think we'll mourn for the sins of other people as well. Not moan. I'm not saying moan. I'm saying mourn. That we mourn for our sin, the sins of our nation, of our society, of our, of our past, of our, even of our church. We mourn, but at this point, again, at this point, comes the kingdom, the comfort of the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. Next one, number five, uh, verse five, pardon me. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. This one is a beast. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Again, this is connected to what has just gone before. Uh, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn for their sin and their brokenness and their darkness. Blessed are the meek, he says. Meek just means simply, or well, it can be understood as humble. Or even mild. Mild seems really pasty and a bit weak, but, but that's what the, the, the word means. And, and, and I suppose if mourning is being honest before God about our sin... Meekness is being honest before other people about my sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher uh, in, in Westminster Chapel in London in the last century, commenting on this, he said, it's comparatively easy to be honest with ourselves before God and acknowledge ourselves to be sinners in his sight. But he says, how much more difficult is it to allow other people to say things like that about me i instinctively resent it says lloyd jones we all of us prefer to condemn ourselves than to allow someone else to condemn us see meekness is this ability to be okay when we recognize our own sins and our flaws And our mistakes in the company of other people. It's being okay with other people bringing these things to our attention. A disciple of Jesus is meek. They know that they have been placed in his kingdom by grace alone. They are meek. Therefore, a disciple of Jesus is not resentful or defensive when their issues are addressed. They own their issues and sins when they are addressed, if that is correct. They are humble before both God and people. That's meekness. That's integrity. I told you it was a beast. It's hard, isn't it? I wonder how you get on with this, being meek. I wonder how you react when people bring challenges to you, sins that they see or they think they see or whatever it may be. How do you do? I think this is a much-needed attribute. If we are going to do life together, as Jesus describes, we need meekness among us. Without meekness, what do we have left? We have conflict. We have grudges. We have bearing resentment. But Jesus said, The meek have the kingdom, the low are raised up. And then, lastly, in this section, this flow, you know, we're getting there, aren't we? Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. This is where the flow ends, I suppose, the connection climaxes in this uh, going deeper bit between us and God. It's not enough just to mourn our sin as much as we need to do that. It's not enough to acknowledge our sin, nor even, as difficult it is, to be open and receptive about that with others that we are with. That's all looking back. That's all the past. That's all things that we have done. And and that is right that we are in that position. But, says Jesus here, the final element is not looking back and sticking in that position. It is looking forward. It is the future. It is the forward momentum. It is anticipating, as he says, tasting and enjoying and being satisfied with all that God has for us. hungering and thirsting for righteousness. What what is righteousness? What is this thing that we're supposed to hunger for? Well, according to Matthew and his usage of this word throughout his entire gospel account that we're reading today, from beginning to end, uh, he uses righteousness in two ways. For him, righteousness he describes as um, that personal righteousness, you know, that the level of character, a life that pleases God that puts away sin, that desires to, to, to live for him, a life that God favours. That's what righteousness is. And, and the disciple of Jesus hungers and f- thirsts for a life that pleases him in every area. But also more broadly, Matthew understands the term to be righteousness in the world. Disciples of Jesus living to seek justice, living, living against oppression in whatever forms. Where the weak are being crushed, we hate that and we work against that to bring justice. A disciple of Jesus hungers after this stuff. Conversely, a disciple of Jesus hates unrighteousness. They despise unrighteousness in themselves, in the world, and they are therefore driven to do whatever it takes to see and live righteously. No excuses. No messing around, no stone left unturned in my own heart, only a radical desire to hunger and thirst for more of God by living for him. So if you want to go deeper, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, do these things. And you will. You actually will. I wonder how you feel about that as you Hear these things perhaps for the first time. Do you feel prompted by any of them in particular? Do you feel nailed by the Holy Spirit? Is He speaking to you right now? Is there something you need help in? You just don't know where to turn. You've come to the right place. That's that's what church is all about. We'll point each other to Jesus. Go deeper. That's the first movement, I suppose to experiencing the kingdom of God comes with the promise of Jesus by the way the second movement then is to go wider this one's a bit quicker um, in terms of our treatment of it today going wider uh, you know we've talked about our relationship to God going deeper but then we're talking about our relationship as a people with people going going wider sort of horizontal if you you like and of course, they are connected the deeper you are with God and into his kingdom, the, 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 the deeper you are with people, you know, the broader your, your reach, I suppose. And remember, what we're looking at here is not different types of people. This is all disciples that we're reading about here. If you are a disciple of Jesus, this is what you are. This is how you should be. So go wider. Um, let's look at those a bit more briefly. Um, and, and there are four of them. So uh, blessed are the merciful, says in verse seven, for they will receive mercy. It's so beautiful, isn't it? This, this uh, beatitude, just in its simplicity. Uh, merciful here, as we, as we understand it, is, is, is about being compassionate. It's about being caring. Uh, John Stott, um, a great sort of uh, writer and preacher, was writing about this as well, and he said the mercy is that thing that deals with pain and, and misery and distress that is caused by sin and brokenness. Um, if we think about it, meekness is acknowledging our own sin before other people in some way or other. Mercy is having compassion on other people's sin and misery. We, 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 we move to relieve their hardship. And I know here at Foundation Church, there are some of you who are really great, really great at doing this. Often done in secret. You only know when you receive it something like this, people like this, disciples, build life together, merciful towards one another. Yes, some are especially gifted uh, and and maybe specialized in that. But according to this, Jesus says, my disciples are to be merciful to one another. They are to treat each other as they wish to be treated, if not better. Uh, Through their actions, they are to speak, uh, sorry, uh, and their words, they're to speak well. Through their thoughts, they're to think well of others. And Jesus says, as you do this. You shall receive mercy. You'll you'll experience the kindness of God as you are kind. As you care, you realize you're cared for. It's kind of circular. Blessed are the merciful. Second um, command in this sort of going wide section, number eight, or verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Remember, this is in the context of going, why do our life together, pure of heart can mean being morally pure, just being upright, but that's kind of similar to what we've already come across. But here, in this context, Matthew is teaching us that pure of heart means being unmixed, untainted, you know, um, undivided in our heart. We are to be pure in heart towards one another. Just for comparison, the opposite to being pure in heart is being a hypocrite, having a divided heart, somebody who, who expresses different behavior and different words depending on who they're with. They want to be thought of nicely. They will talk nicely to your face, and yet they will talk behind your back. That is not being pure in heart. People can be pious and religious in some contexts and have utterly unrighteous behavior in others. That is not pure in heart. According to John Stott, again, he says the worst case scenario in this category is that some people can wind so many lies around themselves that they are actually unable to tell themselves what is true and what is falsehood. Jesus said, my disciples are pure in heart to one another. And when we are, it says, you will see God. You will see the kingdom of God. You will see clearly to see God's kingdom breaking in. Hypocrites won't see clearly. Those with a divided heart won't see this, says Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart. Life together. Third one, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons, children, daughters of God. Peacemakers. Not just peaceful, like nice people who are peaceful, but peacemakers. Those who are actively working for peace. They're cultivating peace. Again, just imagine life together when we're all doing this. Could be amazing. They take steps to advocate for peace, they settle disputes and not start them in the first place. So key to our life together. The alternative, I suppose, again, just for comparison, is a peace breaker, not a peacemaker. Someone who sows division and disunity by their words and their behaviors. Someone who embraces gossip and slander and resentment. These are foreign to being a disciple of Jesus. We are to be peacemakers, not peacebreakers. Another Bible commentator called D.A. Carson said that a large part of being a peacemaker is proclaiming we're announcing the good news of what Jesus has done to make peace. Jesus is ultimately the peacemaker here in this story, is he not? He's called the Prince of Peace. We sing that at Christmas. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus is our peace. He, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility between us as people and between us and God. Jesus broke that stuff down in his body on the cross. And so, according to Carson, peacemakers go big with this message of the gospel, of the peacemaking work of Jesus on your behalf, on the cross, and through his resurrection. That's what he's done. And he says, when we are peacemakers committed to actively cultivating peace, we are affirmed, we are enjoying, we are living out being children of God. We, we show who our Father is through being a peacemaker. And finally, he says in verses ten through twelve, it's, it's actually one beatitude, like a, um, a, a, a re, an extended reflection. And the final one is, "Blessed are those who are persecuted," he says for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or he goes on to say, "For theirs is a great reward." It's no wonder this one actually follows after being a peacemaker, is it? When you think about it, because peacemaking uh, is making much about Jesus and the gospel and what he's done for us, proclaiming that, pressing that out. Peacemakers, of course, are going to be the first to feel persecution. He says, you know, blessed are you uh, when you're persecuted on my account. People talk falsely against you, all kinds of evil against you. When you do that on my account, you are blessed, says Jesus. If you do it because of me, of course, there are different forms of persecution. that is alive and well here. Um, just, just some of it's uh, not maybe what you, you might think of. There's hidden forms of persecution where, where you, you know, people who are believers in Jesus and seeking to live that and follow him, um, they get a hard time from their families. Uh, sometimes, depending on their context and backgrounds, Maybe their friends would disown them. That's how it begins. Persecution can be a bit more overt, even in our own society, through loss of, of job or career, or career opportunities, you get overlooked time and again because, simply because you are a follower of Jesus. Sometimes you can be blackmarked or, or you know, sorry, blacklisted or, or you know, whatever for being a follower of Jesus. Worse still, you may experience threats or intimidation or even harm for being a follower of Jesus. But Jesus says here, you're in good company. Verse 12, he says, they persecuted the great prophets who were before you. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so is yours. So we can see full circle. It's the same promise, isn't it, as we got back in verse 3. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Sort of like bookends, it concludes. It shows us all along this is always about the kingdom of heaven. So let's wrap up. If you want to experience thy kingdom come, And you want to do that in real time, and it's not just some floaty idea that we can all agree to, but if you actually want to experience the kingdom coming in your own life and in your own church, then you move deeper and you move wider. You you obey these beatitudes, and you will see the kingdom. This is the promise of Jesus. I'm not making this stuff up. And you begin with the first one recognizing that you're poor in spirit, that you are spiritually bankrupt. But as we finish, I just want to help us complete the circle. If we are spiritually bankrupt and we have nothing in and of ourselves, how do we get the power to do this if we have none? Where does it come from? Because we can't work our way into the kingdom. How do we get in in the first place? And the answer that we hear from the gospel, from the good news, from Jesus, is that you enter because God chose you and he put his favor upon you and he opened the door to you through his son, through Jesus, through his death on the cross and through his resurrection to eternal life. He's the king. It's his kingdom we're talking about here. And Jesus opens that kingdom to you. Your job is just to Walk through the door is to accept it by faith. It's coming to Jesus with the empty hands of faith and saying, I trust you. I have nothing. You have everything. And you promised to give it to me and I'll take it if... That's how it begins. Accept him by faith. Trust that what he did was for you. And when that happens, he will bring you into his kingdom. He will give you new life. He will give you his Holy Spirit living in you. That's where the power comes from, to do this. You cannot do it on your own, so please don't try. I will save you decades. He gives you his power. He gives you this ability to live for him. So, rather than looking at yourself and being filled with fear and and think to yourself, this is so impossible, this is so hard, I'm so bad, look to Jesus and say to yourself, because of him, I am in, and now I know how to live for him. That's life together, folks. It starts right here. Let's pray. It's going to allow some time now. I realise that, um, you know, the, the, that, that that for me was a very challenging message to prepare and work on this week, and and perhaps um, you're 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 feeling that challenge yourself. Perhaps there's um, through our time of prayer and fasting this week, as you're reflecting on those beatitudes, maybe there's one there that's just really hanging right now in your heart. Um, maybe there's something the Lord is calling you to repent of to turn away from maybe there's some promise that he is calling you to embrace right now all of those are yours through faith in Jesus let's have a few moments of quiet reflection and then we'll we'll respond